0: really have to take the time to question what we want. What would that look like? How would it impact things? How will this impact the whole of my life? And am I looking at my relationships? Am I looking at the financial health? Am I looking at my identity in this community, my business from a holistic place? And and that is such a mirror for looking at health and wellness from this holistic place. Not just know what you want, but question the validity of what you want. Think it all the way through and from a variety of angles so that you're actually pointing yourself towards something that pulls you forward
1: helping people build ambitious and satisfying careers businesses and lives this is the influence ecology podcast now here is your host john patterson
2: good morning good afternoon and good evening wherever you are in the world i'm your host john patterson the co-founder and ceo of influence ecology the leading business education in transactional competence broadcasting from ventura county california this podcast features case studies stories and lessons from business owners executives and entrepreneurs who found real solutions results and satisfaction not only with work career and money but in every area of life you'll hear how these ambitious professionals found that those who transact powerfully thrive as a successful naturopathic physician dr don de offers an approach that guides patients toward a vibrant life in this episode dr de and i discuss why attending to a partial aspect of the body or a transaction doesn't address the whole truth that contemplating whole systems and processes isn't easy but exponentially more effective transactionalism is a philosophical approach that addresses the fundamental nature of social exchange or human transaction. In other words, that all human exchange is best understood as a set of transactions within a reciprocal and co-constitutive whole. In our Guru Talk, you'll hear co-founder Kirkland Tibbles and I address transactionalism and the transactional whole offering a preliminary definition of this philosophy and our study of its importance and relevance. Here's the interview. It's my pleasure today to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Don DeLilly. Don is a successful naturopathic physician in Missoula, Montana. By the way, I looked on Google Maps to find out where that was and what that looked like. That looks like a gorgeous place.
0: It is a gorgeous place. It's it's more gorgeous when there aren't fires in every direction, but it is truly truly beautiful.
2: Let's take a second and just make sure that people understand when you say you're a naturopathic physician, tell us a little bit about what that means.
0: Naturopathic physicians go to a 4-year medical school just like conventional practitioners, but we learn from the very beginning that health encompasses one system, one person, one body. So one of the big distinctions between the way that I was trained as a physician and the way that my conventional counterparts were trained as physicians is that I look at a whole unit, one person. If I pull on any part of that system, the whole system is impacted. And so we often practice what would be considered complementary or alternative medicines, holistic care. I really like the term lifestyle medicine. What we don't do is look at your digestive system as a different thing from your reproductive system. I don't think of your headaches and your food allergies as two different things. But the training that we do is really similar, and our scope of practice in many places is similar to our conventional counterparts. But we don't often use medication. We do when we need to. And um, as I said before, we're really lifestyle medicine practitioners.
2: One thing that you talk about in the beginning of your career was the role that you play both as a single mom and professional, but also what you dealt with originally living in a state that didn't recognize your medical license. Tell us just a little bit about those early challenges. And also, I would love to know in general what the naturopathic physician community deals with about being recognized for their their skills
0: for five years i was living in some way shape or form practicing in florida but in florida the practice of naturopathic medicine is a class three felony which is a unique challenge in most states that don't recognize naturopaths we are simply unlicensed whereas in florida It was once a licensed practice, and the board was dismantled for a variety of political reasons that we don't need to discuss today, but because it was once in the statutes, and it is regulated, it was not okay. And so it did really leave me with a unique set of challenges because I had this phenomenal education and skill set that I really have no regrets around obtaining. And yet I was in a place in which people wanted that information, and yet my hands were very tied in delivering it, which is not a unique challenge for a naturopathic physician. We are licensed in 18 states. And so if you practice in any of the others... You get to walk this very fine line between being of service, helping people to get the health care that they want access to without breaking the law. I did come to terms with the idea that for me to build the professional identity and the satisfying life that I desired would require relocating to a licensed state. And I did that. There are others in my profession who do really well walking the edge. And I really admire that. But as a single mom to a young child, I knew that that was not a path for me. And so we relocated to Montana about a year ago.
2: Sounds like a beautiful choice. There are many different kinds of business owners, small business owners, practitioners and the like that may have a similar sort of struggle. So if you think outside of your own discourse, there are people who may experience similar struggles. Maybe they're in chiropractic, maybe they're participating in a particular dietary approach or something where they face uh, popular views or common views and the like, and battle not only certain laws or regulations, but also certain views. What would you say to someone who's battling those kinds of things and given what you've learned here, how they might approach success given their training and and given their specialized knowledge and their commitment to make a difference in that way?
0: Two things occur to me as you ask this question. One, for those of us who operate in the outskirts of the social norm, right? Like we live in an environment in which Our food sources are not often connected to our health outcomes. And we are indoctrinated into the idea that the expert has the answer, we should swallow the pill and move on. And then there is this ever-growing population of people and practitioners who are saying, no, there is actually a different way. There are these connections. And so if I'm speaking to that population of people, what I would say is that first and foremost to recognize that there is not just an audience for that message, but a growing population of people who are desperately seeking guidance and information in that realm, because not only are they struggling against their own current, and I'm using current now in a a different context than we often use it in influence ecology, but they're struggling against the current that says, eat whatever you want to, here's the medication, don't worry about it, and we'll just do this disease management thing. But then they're also struggling to find their way amongst the internet world where there's so much information that they are paralyzed and confused and sometimes operating in less than savvy ways towards their own goal of being well. And so those people are looking for practitioners like myself, the naturopaths, the functional medicine people, the chiropractors, the informed massage therapists to guide them. So I would say don't lose sight of the need. And that being said, once you know that there is a need for what it is that we do, I think the next piece of that is recognizing how do we do it? How do we do it in a way that works? Because so many of these practitioners are struggling with not knowing how to keep their doors open, because we were trained to have a skill in medicine. We were trained to have a skill in wellness, but that is a very different thing in being trained to run a business that thrives and that sustains you. And so it, it makes me think of this connection between the health of the business and the business of health must be tied together. And that's something that I only learned how to do through this program.
2: I think we should talk about that for just a second. I was looking earlier at the resources that you offer on your own website. One of them is a book called Go Wild. Go Wild is also a book we recommend in our Fundamentals of Transaction program. And one of the reasons we recommend that book is the book proposes and states, hey, look, for hundreds of thousands of years, this species, Homo sapiens, we grew up in a particular kind of environment. And... All kinds of things happened in our evolution that made us who we are today. And let's say the last couple of hundred years, We have removed ourselves from that environment. We have removed ourselves from natural situations and environments. We have removed ourselves from natural temperatures. We've removed ourselves from walking barefoot around on the grass. We've removed it, go on and on and on, right? So we've removed ourselves from all of those things and somehow start to think that we're no longer an animal in an environment, but we're somehow above all that. Then there are all the impacts of all of that. I think in the book, they call it diseases of civilization, So in terms of your health, and by the way, Influence Ecology, we are not health experts. We we do not offer any coaching or training on health, but we do recommend certain books or certain places to go for resources. The book simply states, look, you've got to account for the natural state of things as a whole, W-H-O-L-E, as a whole, and transactionalism trains people to think of the whole in a variety of situations. If I am a human being transacting in a marketplace, I have to think of the whole, the whole environment of the market, the way I'm influenced by that entire ecology and so forth. I bring that up because you and I do have an opportunity to perhaps talk about that a little bit or make some correlations between what you teach and what we teach. Is there anything that you would like to say about all that generally?
0: Absolutely. John, I can't say enough about this. Let me start off by saying that one of the things that I was not expecting out of my study with influence ecology was a deeper understanding of the medicine I practice. At influence ecology, you don't teach health and wellness. You teach structures, you teach a process, and that process is so universal that I was able to take that information and look at my own explorations around health and wellness, understand it more for myself, understand it more for my patients, and actually put it together in a way that made it more accessible for them to achieve the outcomes that they aim to achieve. And one of the things that made a really big difference for me in that conversation is the conditions of life. And as naturopathic physicians, we are holistic practitioners. What I realized was missing from my own conversation around medicine was the conditions of life.
2: And let's just take a second for listeners who've never, ever heard what that means and what we mean by that. Why don't you say in your own words, what are those? What does that mean?
0: So I understand the conditions of life to be these unavoidable aspects of life that we must either attend to or they
2: will inadvertently attend to us. (laughs) Well said.
0: They are things like money and career and health and aesthetic and relationship and legacy environment. And when I say that they have broadened my exploration of medicine, it's because We talked a lot. It it wasn't at our last conference. I think it was at our annual conference. We had a conversation about relationship and it opened my eyes to the observation that as people move towards a higher state of health and wellness, loneliness and isolation begins to be something that they experience because our current social circles often allow for us to have the current state of wellness or the lack of wellness in our lives. If all of my friends drink beer and eat pizza and hanging out with them is what got me sick, not that it's their fault, but that is the social circle that allowed for it, then as I move towards a different place, then I often inadvertently move away from them. And then if I don't find myself in a new container that pulls me forward towards who I want to be, then I experience isolation and aloneness. And I started to tie those things together and how they were impacting the conversation around health and wellness, even though health is its own condition of life. How that tied into what I was experiencing as a parallel with influence ecology is that several years ago, I was surrounded by a group of people who wanted things to be a certain way, took no action towards making them that way, yet complained about them not being a different way. Mm. And so it allowed me to continue having a conversation that wasn't pulling me forward and really serving the business and personal development that I sought. And Influence Ecology allowed me to shift that conversation because it gave me a community that was moving in a way that I wanted to move. And so instead of experiencing loneliness as I moved away from something that wasn't serving me, it provided a container that actually stretched me into a new and more productive conversation.
2: That's great. It's really, really well said. I had the same kind of experience as we began uh, this company about 10 years ago. And I began to consider the environments that made up my social fabric. Uh, The environments were very much people who were committed to magical thinking, uh, a kind of thinking that I don't think was ever responsible for the whole world, uh, the whole marketplace, the different cultures and conditions and situations the mechanics and structures and objective realities and the facticity of money or the facticity of the need to produce certain results in order to satisfy one's needs and wants in life in some ways a lot of people who tended to have the same issues breakdowns and problems year after year after year hanging around with the same people who wanted things to be a certain way but didn't exactly know First and foremost, how to put themselves in the right environments, in the right social ecologies to begin to influence them or pull them towards what they sought to accomplish. And as an example, I often say this, if I want to compete in the Olympics, I have to put myself in an environment of other Olympic athletes who are in training. I have to compete against people better than me. It has to pull me towards that. Otherwise, I will get pulled toward perhaps the amateur athletes or the weekend athletes as opposed to a more ambitious game, if you will. So I first had to confront removing myself from those kinds of environments and putting myself in environments where people were really up to some substantial and lofty aims as a matter of practice and plan and measurement.
1: So it's been a very, very different life. Anything else to say about that? If you'd like to know more about Influence Ecology and our approach, you can register for free 30-day guest access. During this time, you can test drive our interactive webinars, online learning system, and private mentorship. Program participation is by application only, and successful participants earn candidacy into our advanced program tiers. Our members are an international assembly of ambitious professionals, business leaders, and executives from a variety of countries, industries, and cultures. To find out more, you can find a link in the show notes for this podcast at influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. That's influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. Or in the US or Canada, you can text the word ambition to 805-262-9008 and we'll send the registration link right to your mobile phone. Again, text the word AMBITION to 805-262-9008. Also in our show notes, you'll find all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast.
0: Yes, I think that when you say lofty aims, one of the things that is unique about being amongst the right group of people is that the loftiness of their aims is still supported by a groundedness of process and plan. And that's what makes all the difference in the world. We don't succeed through good ideas. It takes so much more. And that's where having a grounded but lofty idea is something that carries us in a different way. And that exists in health. And it exists in the structure of a business.
2: So I think it's useful to talk about that for a second. So when influence ecology speaks to the transactional whole One model that people could imagine is a transaction cycle. You could imagine it like the face of a clock where any transaction, a simple transaction like, "Will you marry me or a complex transaction like launching an entire franchise into the world. But that transaction moves through different states and phases. One thing that we recognize in the transactional whole is that there is the subjective aspect of that transaction, like a good idea. But until that good idea starts to take shape and turn into a very objective plan that can be agreed to by several people and then fulfilled to some objective satisfaction in other words we would know it was satisfied because the measures say so until it can get brought into that structure then it is only one of the components or aspects of a transaction and i think there's a correlation here we can draw and play with a little bit because in the same way that you talk about digestive health versus reproductive health and so forth we have many people who perhaps study aspects of a transaction, as in negotiation, it's an aspect of transaction, or contract law, an aspect of transaction, or selling an idea, which is an aspect of a transaction. So when a person is able to see the whole and think from the whole and attend to the whole, then what they're left with is the ability to enter any discussion, any dialogue, and see where the transaction is and allow them to move that transaction in a way that is reciprocally fortuitous. And that is what we teach. And that's what's so distinct from many other kinds of things that we see out in the marketplace. Are there any correlations that you would draw to that for what you offer?
0: Absolutely. When we divide anything into a subpart, we are often neglecting the relationship to the rest of the being, right? And we certainly see that with health and wellness. I think what is unique about holism, from a professional perspective and from a biological perspective is that it's an ever-expanding conversation. As we move further into the exploration of what it is, we discover that there is only more and more to understand and discover. And so we become more and more of a beginner
2: When you place yourself in a beginner's mind about transactionalism, the transactional whole and all of the reciprocal co-constitutive exchanges that make up the world in which we live, when you approach that with a beginner's mind, when you consider that you may be naive, that there may be something systemic that can point to why that thing breaks down. I was saying something about this the other day to a group of people. And I said, look, you're all a bunch of business owners. You all, you all do whatever you do with whatever business you have. And you continue to have certain kinds of breakdowns. And you in your enterprise have similar kinds of breakdowns. In other words, maybe Joe has a breakdown that's so familiar to him. He keeps having that same kind of breakdown in his business. And then Mary over here, she has some breakdown that she continues to experience again and again and again. Well, perhaps there's something simply missing in the transactional whole that if you allowed yourself to discover where you might be naive, where perhaps there might be some conceit or entitlement present in the transaction itself, then perhaps you'll discover exactly what that is. And for many people, When they discover that they're naive in a particular way, they can correct rather quickly. And then they're hungry for, well, where else am I naive?
0: There is something so terrifying and simultaneously liberating about recognizing what you don't know, because it gives you access to a totally new possibility. And John, what I had to admit in order to become so much more successful in my business was that I did not know what I was doing. And that's a really hard thing to admit. I mean, when you've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars studying something in years of your life, and I don't mean that I didn't have a skill set that was accurate and well-rooted. I mean that it wasn't until I was in this environment and I started studying my behavior that I started to understand this is the process I take. And this is when I don't take a process. (laughs) This is why I sometimes don't end up where I thought I would. And all of that came from finally admitting that I didn't know it all. And it gave me access to recreating everything from the ground up that has been 20 times more successful than it ever had been in the past.
2: It's very, very well said. In your journey, I know that you have a lot to say about what you went through and some of the naivete that you discovered. In your notes, you said some things about buying into the good ideas of the day.
0: The bling in the marketplace.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love that. The bling of the marketplace. That's fantastic. That could be our last big thought here is is that the bling of the marketplace, there's also the bling of the latest health trend, the bling of the latest sell your way to wealth or, or whatever it may be
0: another bypass. There are so many things that are sold that might convince us that we don't have to do the dedicated and committed work of getting there.
2: I would say it sounds like that for both of us, we have discovered that for health and for business, as you teach it and as we teach it, there's a reason people want a quick fix and a miracle pill and they want to read the book summary and think that they got it and they want to listen to a podcast and transform their business <laughs> there's a reason the reason is is because it is easy to simply say all right i'm going to take a look at the at this give it a pill and then we'll all be good as opposed to i may have to study a system i may have to understand that system i may have to look at the whole picture I may have to consider that I may be naive here or there. I may have to look at this with some new eyes. I may have to talk to lots of people. I may have to talk to experts and specialists in a variety of different fields. If I go hunting for where I'm naive to the transactional whole or for where I'm naive to my holistic health, then I'll probably need to study that. For years, because if I'm going to understand the whole, the whole is also something that includes an ever-changing, ever-evolving marketplace, an ever-changing, ever-evolving history to which I am firmly a part. And I cannot simply see a tiny piece of it and think I know the whole.
0: Right. And if I could say that ever so slightly differently differently. This is how I see it and what has really opened up for me for myself as an early practitioner and for what I often see in the patients that come to my practice is that if I blindly follow the shiny object, if I do the next fad, if I follow the next guru, if I think that I can bypass the work and effort and just take the shortcut that is promised, then I don't have to be responsible for my outcome. I can point my finger elsewhere if it falls apart. And I think that the biggest growing up that I did through this study was claiming the responsibility for my life. And once I claimed that responsibility, it no longer occurred to me as the burden of the ever-ending journey of studying and learning and expanding but it simply became an extension of who I am in the world. Like how could I not continue to develop and grow and stretch myself in these new ways because I am responsible for what I am creating. I am responsible for who I am. I am responsible for the product that I deliver. And so with that shift of mind, studying and learning and expanding no longer occurred to me as hard and laborious work. But the real shift for me was in wanting to point a finger versus pointing that finger back at myself.
2: All right, great. Let's just take a moment and see if there's anything else you'd like to make sure gets said about your journey, your own naivete, what you discovered or how you discovered it. Anything else you want to say?
0: Yeah, something that we talked about in a previous conversation that I think merits revisiting is the idea that at Influence Ecology, we learn an entire process around having an idea and moving it into fruition. But what I think is really key is that it starts with knowing where you want to go. And as you mentioned before, when you were talking about this possibility of being an Olympic athlete, and if I want to be an Olympic athlete, then I have to surround myself with a certain population of people, and I have to stretch myself in these various ways. I think that there is tremendous value in questioning what you want and really doing the deep work of assessing what would that look like. Somebody may come to me and they want to lose a certain amount of weight. But as I talk to them, it becomes clear that they don't want to be skinny for a living. right? And what I mean by that is that they don't want to sacrifice all of these other aspects of their life and their well-being in service of being a size two. There are some people who do, and those are not my ideal patients and clients, but that's another conversation. In the same way, I think that as people developing businesses or growing businesses or reviving businesses, we really have to take the time to question what we want. What would that look like? How would it impact things? It comes back to this conversation around holism how will this impact the whole of my life? And am I looking at my relationships? Am I looking at the financial health? Am I looking at my identity in this community as I pull all of these things together? And I've gotten so much support around looking at my business from a holistic place. and, And that is such a mirror for looking at health and wellness from this holistic place. And so that's really, I I think that additional piece that I want to look at is not just know what you want, but question the validity of what you want. Think it all the way through and from a variety of angles so that you're actually pointing yourself towards something that pulls you forward.
2: It's a really great point. Sometimes people ask me, what do I do? And I respond, well, I help people think accurately. There's so many different things that I could say. I help people transact competently. I help people build powerful exchanges. I help people invent businesses that allow them to satisfy many, many different conditions of life. But oftentimes I will say, I, I help people think accurately. And they say, well, what do you mean by that? And it's exactly what you just said. I have them question their aims. And I have them think accurately about their aims. And we often start with money because it's one of those things that people famously do not think accurately about they do not know how much money they need or why they need that amount or they haven't thought about how long they'll live and where they live and all kinds of things about this thing called money Until so we help people think accurately about that and oftentimes people come up with a variety of different answers about what would satisfy objectively their financial aims How much money do they need between now and the time they die is the answer to the question. Well, I got to think accurately about that. And I've got to look at that from a lot of different ways. And sometimes what we do find is, is that people say, look, I've always said that I want to retire a multimillionaire, but maybe I don't. We have people that are here to satisfy some rather lofty aims. And so when we do ask them about those lofty aims, by lofty aims, I mean, that we'd like for you to get serious about The commitment you say you have to a particular result in your life. And if that result is to produce some kind of financial result by some age, then we can help you with that. If that result is to impact the world or the population in some way. You'll need a lot of money. You'll need to build transactions to help you satisfy all that. So, we help you think accurately about all of that. That's what I'll say to that. And it is a big piece of the journey uh, that people learn here.
0: And there's another piece of that that I think is worth bringing up as we're talking about AIMS. It's, It's something that I've heard you say so many times, I've heard Kirkland say it so many times, and it really spoke to me that the average person will do what they're willing to do and then convince themselves to be satisfied with whatever aim that produces. It's a form of settling. And those of us who are ambitious in creating lives that are holistically healthy, we choose the aim that we stand for with all of the accurate thinking, with looking at that from a variety of points of view and, and really being committed to it. And then we organize our action around producing that. Instead of trying to reverse engineer accepting what is based on what I think I'm capable of or willing to do, that makes a really, really big difference in the aims that become achievable.
2: I'm going to say this one quote. It's a quote by Kirkland Tibbles. It's rather than study, practice, and learn the habits, behaviors, and ethics that must be embodied in order to reach their aims in life. Most people adjust their aims to fit their current habits, behaviors, and ethics. And it is true. We find that most people do just simply adjust their aims or lower their standards or lower their sights to fit their current behaviors. Generally speaking, I think anybody listening could say, yeah, it's quite common for you and I to adjust our aims to fit our current practices and habits rather than to build some new habits and practices or perhaps build an entire transaction or an entire enterprise to satisfy your aims. And so that's what we're here to teach. Well, Dawn, it has been a pleasure talking to you.
0: I appreciate being here. I appreciate you making the time to do this. And in the last couple of days, I I really had the chance to let my own thoughts marinate on this idea that the business of health must mirror the health of the business. It brought a lot of things to life again. I just want to acknowledge that it is a special opportunity to have a chance to speak to other people who might be struggling to create something that is deeply meaningful to them and not having access to a pathway. And then having found access to a pathway and then to be able to turn around to others who were still back there and confused and say, here it is, (laughs) here's the road. And to also just acknowledge Valerie Howard for inviting me into this community and into this conversation. Appreciate it. I appreciate all of you.
2: Thank you very, very much. We appreciate you being here. As I stated, in our Guru Talk, you'll hear co-founder Kirkland Tibbles and I address Transactionalism and the Transactional Whole, offering a preliminary definition of this philosophy and our study of its importance and relevance. This talk is an excerpt from a lecture titled The History of Transactionalism and is a heady start to one of four lectures designed to offer A Basic Understanding of the Book, Transactionalism, an Historical and Interpretive Study, authored by Trevor J. Phillips and published by Influence Ecology, with foreword by Kirkland Tibbles. Here's the talk. Tonight's session, series one, what is transactionalism? Why is this history relevant and a preliminary definition? I'm actually going to start with a preliminary definition. It is of necessity a preliminary definition because a more mature statement requires the utilization of information and material to be presented in later chapters and in the work we'll do together during the founder studies. The book and the founder studies will therefore present a more exhaustive definition than's possible in this lecture. Viewed in philosophical dimension, transaction denotes a reciprocal relationship between that which acts and and that which is acted upon. In this relationship, both, that which acts and that which is acted upon, both become united for the moment in a mutual transition or transaction. It's a process in which both are reciprocally transformed. That is to say, the nature of the change that each undergoes is affected by the presence and influence of the other. The relationship forms a bond of unity which contradicts any absolute separation or isolation which is imposed by dualistic categories. So I know for some of you that was clear. For others, you were like, what the heck did that just say? And we're going to begin. We're going to keep going. So I'm not going to take the time to sort of explain or make it clearer. I think what you want to do is get a gist of some of these terms and some of this, and it'll get clear as we go. So I'm going to read this part again, and then we're going to move forward. In this relationship, both become united for the moment in a mutual transition or transaction. It's a process in which both are reciprocally transformed. That is to say, the nature of the change each undergoes is affected by the presence and influence of the other. The relationship forms a bond of unity, which contradicts any absolute separation or isolation, which is imposed by dualistic categories. Some examples of transactions are borrowing lending, buying selling, writing reading, parent child and husband wife. The paired names go together and are therefore correlative. Each member of a pair is an indispensable aspect of the complete transaction and cannot retain its status in the pair as a separate element or entity. In other words, borrowing, for example, is an aspect of the borrowing-lending transaction and cannot, without serious distortion, be regarded as an independent element. That's to say, one can't borrow except with the help of a loan. One of the quotes I love, this is uh, out of the book John Dewey and Arthur Bentley uh, from Knowing and the Known says, the transactional approach is designed to correct the fragmentation of experience on whatever level it may occur and to see together much that is talked about conventionally as if it were composed of irreconcilable separates. And Kirkland, I think what I'd like to do is take a moment and to frame up transaction a little bit here to offer some, some way to think about transactionalism. And I know that for you and I both, this particular quote I know that when we both read it, it was like, yes, <laughs> exactly. So is there anything you'd like to say to help frame up where we're headed?
3: Just in this preliminary look, the the way to consider transacting is in a, it's a dangerous word to use because it carries with it so much history and, and people tend to relate to a transformative relationship in a lot of different ways. But to transact is... Is to transform anything from its separates into what what we would call a unity or a whole. That there is a composition, if you will. There's a something that gets fixed or corrected. And that thing that gets fixed or corrected is this this fragmentation that Phillips really expands on and pulls many um, articles and mm-hmm. uh, other resources and references to this notion that we exist somehow as a separate thing in our environments. And human beings, you're going to, we'll get into this, I'm sure, throughout this lecture series, but human beings tend to think that we are somehow separate. And we are here to challenge that notion that we are separate. We are not separate, we assert. We are not separate from our environment. In fact, we are far more constrained by it and in a transaction with it than we are somehow separate from it. And it is incorrect, and we say a flawed notion to consider that you are separate from your environment, and that environment is the whole, it's the aggregate of all the surrounding things, which include not just the fabricated elements that human beings produce, but nature it is the language that we steep ourselves in, the people we choose to engage with. And there is a even more relevant aspect to this notion that we transact. If you look at, we are not separate. And so the first thing that I had to really get my, my hands around, John, is this notion, this concept that human beings have set themselves up as some kind of, and i Use the word "superior" in a, you know, I mean it, mean it as I as I say it here, that we are we are somehow separate and and superior to. Yep. Just because we have the capacities and the skill to produce the the construct, the concept that we are separate doesn't make it so. And so when you started off with this this fact, what I'd like for you to consider, and maybe try on like a coat here, is this notion that we are not separate. And it, it starts to become more and more relevant and valuable for us to begin to look as uh, that we are part of something. Does that help, John?
2: It absolutely does. I'm reminded of the fundamental background on which our work is based in the fundamentals of transaction papers and so forth. You'll, say, you'll hear us say something like, we are biological, linguistic, and transactional. And we refer to biology or biological simply to provide in some way the reminder that we aren't above our biology. We're not superior to our biology. And when I say our biology, I mean both the environment of our body, which includes all that happens within it and in an exchange with the environment that surrounds it and all that happens with it emotionally, psychologically, proteins and neurons and all that. So there's something biological to account for in the environments in which we live. And as Kirkland said, uh, we often dismiss it as, as if it's no longer relevant. In our next episode, we interview Christina Penchenko a virtual CFO born in the Soviet Union who grew up on an ethic and philosophy of hard work.
1: From what I recall, we
3: were taught that you have to work hard. Um, Even, I think, one of the quotes, posters we had everywhere when I was young from Lenin, it says, work, 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 just things like that. And it's just, it was I think that that was just kind of ingrained in our brains that you have to work really hard. And the harder you work, the more rewarding it will be, the more value you'll get.
2: If you enjoyed this podcast, we ask that you share it with others. You can share it from our website at influenceecology.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or any place you get your podcasts. If you haven't yet offered a rating or review, I ask that you take a moment, go to iTunes, and let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to another great episode of the Influence Ecology Podcast. I'm your host, John Patterson. I'd like to thank Dr. Donda Lilly for a great interview. In our show notes, you'll find links to connect with her and all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. The podcast is made possible by the brilliant work of the Influence Ecology staff, mentors, and members around the world. We're grateful for co-founder Kirkland Tibbles and his 30 plus years of specialized study and practice that make all this possible. Our episode producer, editor, and music supervisor is Jason Kelly. I'd also like to thank Tyson Crandall and Carol Gregory for their contributions.